Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. It's time to mix things up before we end another series of Bring Back V10s. We're done with looking back at specific storylines or race weekends, and now the power is handed over to you, our audience, to get us thinking, and in one case, upset Ed Straw with a dig at LaRousse. That's right, it's time for the traditional Ask Us Anything episode. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions, either by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or by emailing them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And I must say, our our email inbox has really taken over now as the main place where we receive questions. So... uh, Thanks to everyone who sends emails to that account. I know we only get a chance to reply to a handful of them, but I promise every single email gets read. And we're very grateful to those of you who just get in touch to tell us how much you love the show. That means that means a lot uh, to me especially. But anyway, let's crack on and find out who we are putting to the test with your questions today. Our starting lineup is Ed Straw, Gary Anderson and Andrew Vanderberg. Uh, Ed, I'll come to you first. You must be an almost ever-present on these end-of-series specials. As you know, no traditional opening question this time. So instead, which question are you most looking forward to from our list? Yeah, I always enjoy these ones because there's a good variety of questions, always really interesting. But I'm quite looking forward to giving short shrift to a question you've already alluded to. There's an (laughs) assertion made in a certain question. And if you've sent in a question and your name is Joe, you may get some short shrift from me. So I'm looking forward to dismissing one assertion in a question. The question itself is good, but there's a claim in it that I think cannot stand unchallenged. I'm sure Joe knows that's coming as well. Uh, Gary, as usual, we have a few questions that were directed specifically at you when they were sent in. Which one has most caught your eye? Well, I think there's there's two really. It's about drivers. It's about the uh, the Schumacher brothers, um, and, the, and what the what KLC would have caused being together, and also <laughs> the my comments about the old hardened professional drivers that uh, we received against the new young up and coming drivers. I think they're both interesting because it's uh, it's about driver and uh, adaption to the team, which is so important for any driver to really buy into where they are and for the team to buy into that driver. Yeah, I do like the questions where it's uh, somebody remembers something we've said on a previous show and then either wants us to explain it or take us to task on it. So that's good. It shows you're all paying attention. Uh, Andy, welcome along. Which question are you most looking forward to getting stuck into? Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, there's one question here that's particularly in my wheelhouse. So in the mid 2000s, I was Autosports junior single seater man, for want of a better uh, description. And there's a brilliant question about that that I may go on far too long about. So cut me off if necessary. But I've got a lot to say on that subject. There's a fair chance that question's only made it in because you're here. <laughs> but brilliant, perfect even better for you. <laughs> Now, as we reach the end of the series, it's still a good time to sign up to the Race Members Club as we'll have some bonus content for you once the series finishes 
and our members will get their own exclusive Q&A episode like this. So if you're looking for much higher odds of your question making the cut and more Bring Back V10s to listen to that won't be released in our main feed, head to the hyphenracecom forward slash members club to find out more and to sign up. And check out shop.the-race.com to look at all of our Bring Back V10s merchandise. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, baby grows. My son has one of those. And uh, there are also mugs, water bottles and notepads. We'll be working up some new designs in there too very soon. And lastly, make sure you check out our Twitter community where you can chat about the V10 era with over a thousand other fans of F1 history. To join the fun, look for the link in the description to this show. Okay, we've got loads of questions, so let's crack on. Ed, our first question is from James Llewellyn, who says, I listened to the Beyond the Grid episode with Neil Oatley recently, during which he said that McLaren's brake steer system gained them up to half a second of lap time when it was first introduced in 1997. Given McLaren's mega pace advantage over the rest of the grid in Melbourne 98, just how much did the system's ban from Brazil onwards cost McLaren? And would Michael Schumacher and Ferrari have ever been able to mount a title challenge had brake steer remained? Yeah, well, it made a great car better, didn't it? So it was a clear advantage. So it certainly made the McLaren a weaker package, still very, very strong in 98. Obviously, most probably remember it, but it was the third brake pedal. It allowed drivers to apply the brake on one side of the rear axle. First appeared Canada 97, revealed to the world by F1 Racing magazine, those famous photos from Darren Heath from the Nürburgring. And then in 98, that system evolved. It became a switchable system because in 97, you had to choose which side it braked but in 98 there was a manual switch in the in the cockpit so you could switch it to either the left or the right wheel so again that was a bit extra you didn't have to just choose one side or the other depending on track configuration and that half a second a lap number from Oatley I think is perfectly reasonable but it actually fluctuated quite a lot with track configuration because it's also not just a flat lap time gain what the brake steer being there gives you it's also about what it lets you do in terms of the overall setup because you can have a little bit more understeer in the car, so you don't have too much oversteer on entry. You can have some traction gains, less roll stiffness at the rear. It allowed them to run, which would contribute to understeer that you could neutralise using the brake steer. So there's compound gains there, and it would have fluctuated. Probably some tracks, it might have been a bit less than half a second. Maybe others, it would have been more. It was banned on the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend. So for pretty much the whole season, there was something that would have made the car globally better that was, was not there. So... I think it wouldn't have taken a huge amount to have knocked Schumacher and Ferrari out of that championship equation. And I think if you had a few more McLaren-optimised weekends from that, it would have been a bigger gap to, for Ferrari to catch up. And yeah, I think it could have influenced that year's championship because remember, McLaren was the stronger car that year, uh, ultimately. And it's quite interesting because it was banned because of the the, the ban on four-wheel steering. Uh, that wasn't legal, but I don't think it was really a correct application of that ban. I'd actually be quite interested to know if Gary agrees or disagrees with me on that one because he was one of the rival technical directors who was trying to come up with their own version of a brake steer. But although it impacted the sort of the steering of the car, it wasn't reorientate, reorienting the, the wheels, changing the way they were pointing. So 
I think it was banned because they didn't like the idea of it because it wasn't a particularly complicated system, tricky to use. But I'd be interested to know what Gary's position on that was. Yeah, I mean, it, it is difficult to sort of justify it as um, four-wheel steering because, as you say, it didn't change the geometry of the wheel. Uh, whereas any steering changes the geometry of the wheel, the, the FIA's argument was the fact that the, the two front wheels still stayed relatively connected when you steered. So any one wheel would affecting the other wheel would, in effect, be steering. But um, we, we, we ran our own version of it, obviously, after we've discovered what was going on with the... Uh, with the McLaren, and we had a, a mechanical version, which was, it was just basically a ball bearing sitting in a very shallow V, and once you turned the car, the the, the, the forces would make that ball go one direction um, to the outside of the corner, and depending upon where you had the two small cylinders that were feeding the, the brakes, the rear brakes separately, you know, the driver could apply that brake and um, either slow down the inside wheel or slow down the, the outside wheel, depending upon which way that ball went. Um, or the which way you had the V mounted, so it was um, it was quite a good system um, for, as you say, getting rid of a bit of understeer uh, and or helping the traction in the middle of the corner. But the the thing that st- stands out to me is the fact that if you if you apply it to a car that's reasonably good, as you were saying there about the McLaren, um, then it it gives you a bit of lap time. But if you actually design the car to use it on a permanent basis, you would sort of build in more understeer into the car. Um, so it can hurt you even more once it's banned. Um, so that's one of the sort of stupid things about all this. You you end up designing your car around it, and then somebody says you can't have it, and suddenly your 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 car suffers a bit because of it. So I think the loss would be more for Ms. Mer- for McLaren once it was banned than the gain would have been when they first installed it in a car that was that was decent to begin with. Uh, it was a good system. It did work quite well, but again, it, it depended on the driver using it very well. You know, it, you could you could abuse it uh, dramatically um, or you could use it. And that was a big decision the driver had to make because, you know, you have to read the car in the middle of a corner and decide what you're going to do with it. I know that um, Coulthard has said both he and Hakkinen were using it for traction out of the corners as well. But I think we we end up consigning this as one of those things that Ferrari basically pushed to get banned because they didn't have their own version or couldn't get their own one to work. But uh, let's move on. Gary, the next question is for you. It's from Chris Parrott, who asks, would the Schumacher brothers have made good teammates? Well, this actually sort of semi-relates back again to the uh, the third brake pad that we've just been talking about in a way. You know, taking the two of them, I only worked with Michael at uh, 1991 at Spa in the Jordan when he was a new boy in town. And, um, I mean, he was exceptionally gifted, Um he had no problems with his confidence. He had no problems with his level of talent or his abilities to achieve that. So he was a he was a very you know from day one you could see he was very very accomplished. Ralph was slightly different. Obviously coming in a bit later, five years different. It was 1996 when he first drove with us, uh, testing in the 96 car, and um, he was you know he he had obviously learned from his brother, um, or he had spoken with his brother quite a lot, and basically. He was trying to do everything that Michael was doing, but he didn't know why. That was the thing about it. You know, he wasn't quite sure why he was doing it. And taking an example of that with Magni Coeur, you come down the pit straight there, you turn left, first corner's flat, and you go into the second corner, which sort of leads into the third corner onto the back straight. And um, Michael had taught Ralph about left foot braking. And Ralph could go through those that first corner, brake with his left foot, keep the throttle flat out, and change down two gears at the same time 
to get out of the the tighter corner onto the back straight. So he, you know, that was a, a, an example of not knowing why he was doing it, and you know, it kept breaking gears because obviously it didn't like to know to, the car thought it was flat out. Brakes were hard on, and down two gears at the same time was not something the car really sympathised with. Um, and sort of you tell them that really you've got to give the car a clue. Do you want to go faster or do you want to go slower? That's what the two pedals are for. Um, now, other corners like, like Cops at Silverstone, it was fantastic because you go through there at that time, seventh gear, you know, uh, you'd be flat out and you just press the brake pedal that little bit to take a little bit of speed out of it. He was very, very good at that. So as two drivers, the I suppose the best thing to say was the name was the both their names was Schumacher, but um, I think Michael was was well ahead of Ralph on his adaptation to how things went. And if they'd both been in the same team, I think we'd had fireworks because they, you know, you always fight your teammate, and it's very different with with brotherly love involved in that as well. I think my life would have been hell um, for a start because Michael was that step better than Ralph at all points in time. Ralph was quick on his day. But it was quick in his day by being a bit of a, a gorilla. There was very little finesse in it. Um, and he would have been trying to chase Michael all the time and catch him. And on some occasions he would have done, but I think my life would have been a bit too difficult. Yeah, we saw we saw the odd bit of needle between them when uh, whenever Ralph was in a competitive Williams, didn't we? Um, talking to Williams, Andy, uh, James White says, do you think Jensen Button would have done any better than Montoya or Ralph Schumacher if he was kept at Williams in the early 2000s? I think this is a really tough question. And as with all these what-ifs, they're, they're very hard to answer. But this one, I think, is particularly difficult. But what I've ended up surmising is, obviously... Jensen was really inexperienced when he came to F1, you know, uh, that one season of F3 and some Formula Ford was, a, was really the limit of his single-seater knowledge. And you saw that he had a, a period of growing up and transition to do that first year at, at Benetton was pretty poor uh, and he had to sort of readjust how he was operating his lifestyle, the way that he was training and all those sort of things. And we, and as Gary said on, on his day, Ralph Schumacher could be a very competitive and quick driver and, and more or less had the better of him throughout the most of 2000. Um, and I don't really see that changing in 2001. In 2002, when he'd sort of got into his new regime, uh, maybe he would have been a little bit more competitive there. But I think the, the button that we saw in the, mid-2000s when he matured into being a super competitive uh, driver at BAR was still a little bit too far away for him to have taken on Ralph and then obviously we know how Montoya fared against Schumacher so I'm not convinced that uh, that he would have added anything more than the performance they got out of the car I think he would have been as inconsistent as they both were and probably another missed opportunity for Williams BMW to, to take a title sadly. Much of a muchness then, but well-reasoned. Uh, Ed, Paul Lucas has the next question. Paul asks, if McLaren had retained Ford engines for 1994, could Mick Hakkinen, Martin Brundle, or even Alain Prost have challenged Schumacher's Ford-powered Benetton for the title? Now, I'll just explain to anyone who doesn't remember, the Prost reference there is because Alain tested the 94 McLaren in pre-season, the, the one with the Peugeot engine, and funnily enough, decided he didn't fancy coming out of retirement to race it. Yeah, this is a difficult question because it's not just one that you can answer by thinking, well, what would the McLaren MP49 as was be like with that Ford V8 in the back of it? Because 
pretty much everything McLaren did that season was defined by that Peugeot move. It was quite a late deal. They designed the car without a finished engine and Peugeot was sort of flip-flopping on the other two, two different engines, uh, broadly speaking. So they were really guessing. They were guessing on the cooling and heat rejection characteristics just based on the sports car engine and just general knowledge about how cooling works. And the actual start of season car the mclaren it was basically an evolution of the mp48 they had a few side pod tweaks to accommodate the engine and a few floor changes that kind of thing but it was just all about getting a car out there with that peugeot engine in it and that engine is in a lot of conservatism and of course the reliability was terrible with the peugeot engine peugeot made some pretty big horsepower gains during that year which tells you how low they were to start with they put sort of 60 horsepower plus on it with various steps through the year so the car was almost secondary there. So what you can say is if there was the the Ford engine, okay, the, the, the ZTEC R engine, the, the Ford EC, uh, that was its underlying thing. The ZTEC R was a branding exercise for 94, was a new engine. It was a good good engine, but they'd have, they'd have had reasonable knowledge about what was coming from that. So it would have been a much more normal transition and design process. So I'm sure the car would have been better optimised around that car. They'd have been able to make more aero gains and that kind of thing. So I think you'd have had a better car as well as a more reliable car and a pretty well-performing one because that Ford engine was not the most potent, but it was very drivable. It worked well. And of course, Michael Schumacher and Benetton made uh, made great uh, use of it. But there was also that challenge. It was the post-Gizmo season in 1994. McLaren had to adapt to that a bit. I think that was a challenge that was almost secondary to the Peugeot stuff that was going on. So it almost didn't get talked about or noticed. But it was a car that got some decent results in reality. Eight podiums that season, which isn't bad. So assuming a normal run into that season in terms of design and preparation, the car would have been a bigger step forward. So I think there'd have been more performance from the start of the season. I think probably a few wins were possible. I'm not sure about the championship though, because Mika Hakkinen was undercooked as a driver very very fast and he had some good runs that year but of course this was also the year he got that race ban was caught up in some incidents as for Brundle, erratic, wasn't he exactly yeah so he was uh yeah very much still some rough edges to be smoothed out for Hakkinen but he'd have had some mega weekends as well and he did have some great weekends that season quite a lot of podium finishes for him Brundle obviously wasn't a qualifying driver he'd have been relying on his race pace which was asking a lot f1 wise certainly in terms of being a, a championship challenger the way f1 was evolving he also had the problem that i think this was the first two pedal mclaren so they went to the, the hand clutch and brundle's left foot braking wasn't really up to it as a legacy of the shunt he had in 1984 he, he just couldn't apply the power he needed to on the brake to do it properly so that would have been an extra problem and it was an extra problem for him in 94 which is why his qualifying was fairly poor but race performance is very very good so i would expect mclaren with that ford assuming it was a works ford engine deal would have had a few wins that season but i can't see them beating benetton and the fact that obviously benetton was the works team that would have thrown up all of the other politics and that kind of thing that they had in 93 when they were trying to get engine parity which they did get during the season but yeah it would have been a good step forward for McLaren and I think it would have been a better season but championship wise that might be asking a little bit too much. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Andy, you can take the next one, which is from Chris United 93 who always sends us a lot of questions, but this one was my favourite. Uh, Chris says, if Senna had taken an IndyCar deal, how would he have got on in the US and would he have come back to F1 one day, perhaps for Ferrari? Now, Chris didn't specify, but I'm going to say this is the Penske 93 opportunity after Senna tested for the team, of course, in late 92. So he goes to IndyCar at the same time as Nigel Mansell. Yeah, I love this question. Um, and I love the uh, the the Bring Back V10's uh, podcast on it as well. It was a great show. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, from what was said on that show, he would have had a very similar season to Mansell's, but actually the inverse. Because as you said, the Penske uh, was a brilliant road and street track car, but it struggled on the ovals. And I think Senna would have been competitive everywhere on, on the road and street courses and probably won a significant number of them. Uh, I'm not going to say all, because there were some really serious competitors there, but he would have been, I imagine he would have been in contention at most of them and probably struggled on the ovals, not because he wasn't able to adapt to the ovals. I'm sure he would have been on it as quick as Mansell was, but because uh, the Penske simply wasn't, a, did an oval car as, uh, as the Lola was that season. Um, it would have been apt. Imagine the box office if they'd had Mansell and Senna there. I mean, Bernie would have been crying about how big Indy was getting at that time and would have had to have put a stop to it. It would have been a nightmare for F1. Oh, absolutely. Worst possible thing, I imagine. It probably would have killed them as a TV uh, audience product at the time. But obviously that test did what it was supposed to do, and that was to bring Ron to the negotiating table and get his million a race and whatever. So he carried on through 93 while he worked on his Williams deal for 94. Um, I often suspected, and obviously it was rumoured all the time, that he would ultimately have ended his career at Ferrari probably in 96, maybe instead of Schumacher going there, uh, which obviously is another great one of these what-ifs. But I don't see any reason why, had he have gone to uh, IndyCar in 93, that he might well have done the similar thing as Mansell, a couple of seasons out there, and then maybe come back to Ferrari for 95 there. I think if there's a Senna on the market, they'll break their deal with Lacey Orberger at the the drop of a hat. I don't think that that contract would have got in the way. Hopefully there's a parallel universe where that plays out and, and somebody gets to enjoy how absolutely amazing it would have been to see those two uh, going head-to-head in a Penske and a Lola 93 IndyCar. Yeah, it would have been incredible. I'd definitely watch that. The, the, the big difference, I guess, would be that if Senna was at Penske, his second season would be in an even better car, whereas Mansell kind of lost faith in IndyCar because his 94 Lola wasn't any good. But that's a story for another time. I think this, the, the reception to the Mansell 93 episode... Um, means that our gamble to try some IndyCar, uh, it won't be a one-off and we probably will do the uh, the other half of the Mansell IndyCar story at some point in the future. But let's stick with the cart theme for now. And Ed, Scott Bramley asks, how do you think Greg Moore would have done in F1 if he had switched from cart? Yeah, an interesting question because there was some tentative interest in him from F1, Jackie Stewart had a bit of interest in him. He's on Ferrari's radar. Williams had a little look at him as well. So there's every possibility he would have had a chance in F1 and clearly a hugely talented driver, very, very quick. He was only 24 when he was killed in that horrific crash at Fontana in 1999 and probably 24 back then was slightly younger in racing terms maybe than than it is today, certainly in F1 terms. And of course, he'd spent four years with Players Forsyth racing, won five races. He'd not emerged as a title contender at that point, 
first half of uh, of 1999, he started to look like he might. Uh, 1998, rather. He had a strong start to the season, but then it dropped off in the second half of the year. And then it had been more of the same, really, in 99, some peaks and some troughs. But he was showing signs in 99 in particular of smoothing out some of those rough edges because he was hot, aggressive, fast. Sometimes his hard racing approach could be a bit counterproductive, but he was starting to understand that it's a bit more than just wringing the car's neck and trying to win every single race. So there was a sign of that, and he'd signed for Penske for 2000, so he'd have gone there, he'd have been there with Roger Penske, Rick Mears, all these guys, and I think that would have been the perfect finishing school for him. So no question he'd have thrived, I think, with Penske and won probably um, a cart title or two. So that could have set the stage for an F1 shot, Although he could have remained with Penske indefinitely or even gone to NASCAR because he was quite interested in NASCAR. And this was a point where NASCAR was really booming. So I can actually see a future for him where he'd have had some success in kart with Penske or an early when they moved to IRL as well because they moved over relatively uh, quickly and then maybe jumped into NASCAR in the sort of middle of the of the, the first decade or sort of later. Toward, You're doing a good job of dancing around the point. How would he have done in F1? Well, the question is... <laughs> exactly when it would be. So I would imagine, had he done it, he'd have moved as maybe, I don't know, a 27, 28-year-old after success with Penske. A little bit late, but not probably too late at that time. And I assume he would go as a more controlled, rounded driver. But it would have entirely have depended on what the opportunity was, really, and how well Greg Moore himself had been able to deal with the, the challenges and the trade-offs of F1, obviously complicated cars, etc. And you need to kind of take almost another step in terms of how you see the, the big picture. And obviously that pace would have been there, no question. But it's very difficult to say he would have been a world championship caliber driver, for example, which is kind of the thing that's always said about drivers who are, are cut down before they reach their prime, because you always foresee the best version of themselves i'm not saying he wouldn't have been but i'd have been saying right let's see how he does with penske does he round off those edges does he really bring it all together and then when he moves does he take to it well does he adapt does he understand and does he integrate properly very possible raw material certainly there so it would come down to opportunity and it's maturing mentality to tie it all together but i've no doubt he was plenty able enough to at least have been a, a probably a very good f1 driver so it's kind of a question about whether he's in the very good category or could he become great who knows it's a question that we can never definitively answer sadly better than cristiano de Mata, then yeah i actually thought de Mata did fairly well enough yeah i felt sorry he was for a victim him when he got of uh, a victim of toyota but also he moved into a he, he'd have moved into f1 after having been there in the sort of peak cart years, Demata's sort of cart peak was just as it had sort of come over the brow and was going into that decline. Not saying it was easy, but yeah, I think probably he could have been a cut above that. Cool. Okay, uh, Gary, uh, Simon Ems has a question that, uh, this is one of the ones that took your fancy earlier. Simon says, I was listening to the first episode of this series about Red Bull and was struck by Christian Horner's comment that it was useful having DC as a reference to benchmark Red Bull to McLaren. Gary has said many times, usually in reference to Damon Hill and Martin Brundle, that he didn't find old guys saying this is how we did it in a big team particularly useful. Why was it helpful with David Coulthard and Red Bull, but not at Jordan? Yeah, um, interesting question. I'll take it sort of as two parts. I think the first thing that DC pointed out to uh, to Christian Horner when Red Bull took over uh, what was Jaguar was the fact that they needed Adrian Newey. Um, you know, that that's it. And today, currently in 2023, it's still exactly the same. They've got the, the right guy and the right job. Um, 
So Christian was trying to build a team, and if he had built it around the people that were there, they were all competent people, but you know they didn't have an Adrian Newey, and they needed somebody to lead that ship. So DC was a really good reference for that because he knew how the McLaren operation ran. He knew that Adrian was a bit disillusioned with Ron Dennis at McLaren, and that the door was open to sort of snatch him away. So that that's all you could ever ask for. Now, as far as I'm concerned, with with uh, Damon Hill and Martin Brundle, both very good drivers, no problems whatsoever. Uh, what I've said many times is I always liked the young guy who would get in and wring its neck, um, and you know try to try to work with what he's got. I never really reacted to a driver coming in and saying, "Oh well, at you know at Williams or at wherever." you know, Benetton, uh, we had a car that did this. Um, And obviously I was the, let's theoretically put it, and I'm a long way away from it, I was the Adrian Newey of Jordan at the time. So neither of those guys are going to come in and say, you need to employ such and such a one because, you know, getting Patrick Head out of uh, of Williams to come to work for Jordan would have been a bit difficult. Um, So it was a, a completely different set of circumstances in my book, you know, Technically, as I say, we build a car with the best of our knowledge. The driver gets in it, the driver drives it, he comes back and tells you what the car's doing and you try and you try and fix it. But to say, you know, the Williams had less understeer than this or the, the Williams had better traction than this or X car had better than this is very difficult to react to. And I'll take another example like that. We tested the 98 car um, in Barcelona a few times and it was, we had problems with the engine. Um, with the Honda engine at that point in time, it was way down in par. But also the car, as I've said many times, it didn't have, um, it, it, it wasn't the, what the driver wanted. And we couldn't figure it out really, because the car should have been a decent car. But obviously we'd gone wrong somewhere in our research. But, you know, we, we weren't fast. And then we went one day, or one test alone with, uh, with Damon to, to Barcelona again. And it was like a two-day test. And from lap one, the car was good. You know, it just it did what he wanted. He drove it well. And from a bad test when Damon wouldn't phone you to a good test, he was on the phone every, you know, the next two or three days, he was on the phone every 15 minutes about ideas about this, ideas about that. So when it was good, he was very good and he was helpful. But unfortunately, it was one of those set of circumstances where at that test, at the balance we had, the way the circuit was or whatever, the car was actually quite good for the driver. So I, I liked, as I say, I liked the young driver who would get in a ring its neck, sometimes make mistakes, but you could try and use your experience to help them as opposed to the other way around. So again, just to sort of reiterate, I think DC's big asset to Red Bull was to allow him to uh, to pull Adrian Newey into the team, uh, whereas it was about just cars and what Jordan had built and the driver adapting to that. And as I say, the the professional drivers coming in, some of them, I must admit, were getting into the retirement plans. Um, and that's why I like the young, hungry driver that would uh, wring its neck every time he got in the car. Just to play devil's advocate, Gary, by throwing back at you something you've talked about in the past. In a specific situation, I remember you talking about the value of Andrea de Cesaris in the first season at Jordan because he had his notebook with all the setups and that kind of thing. So in a situation when it's kind of a team that's got a knowledge deficit in that regard, I guess that that's the sort of the, the area where that experience can come in handy for if you're a, if you're a new team. 
Yeah, it is for sure. Andre was was fantastic in our first year, ninety ninety one, heading into races that we'd never seen the track before, and pre qualifying, which meant you were going out very early in the morning on a dirty track, and if you didn't if you didn't get in the top four, you went home early. So, you know, we needed some guidance, and Andrea came in with all these with this experience. His experience was very very different from what I classified Damien or or Martin. He would come out. He had his book, and basically what he had there was. Um, you know, he'd, he'd put top speeds in, he'd put corners with gears, um, he'd put uh, wing levels that they'd used on a different car completely, but it let us sort of read the read read the sort of direction of car setup, whether it was high downforce, low downforce, medium downforce. Um, it gives you a guide for the gears for the corners, um, stiffness, car stiffness. You know, it, it was completely different to ours because of the mechanical ratios and stuff, but at least we could compare Monaco to to Spa or to Silverstone or wherever um, in the fact that they run the car a lot stiffer there than they did um, at such and such a track. And Andrea was there with his comments, you know, yeah, the car wasn't very good around such and such a track. So that set up, don't pay much attention to it. The car was pretty good around this track. So, you know, you could get a trend and that would that helps a lot with pre-qualifying. Ed, uh, the next question is for you. Naturally, we always get lots of back of the grid questions where people want you to answer them specifically, including this one from Greg Ankers. Greg asks, could you tell the story of Shannon Racing's brief stint taking over the 40 team in 1996 and why did it go wrong? Yeah, this is a, a great story, and the whole Shannon Racing Team thing was bizarre, to say the least. There's still some mystery surrounding some of the details, but uh, the, the basic story is fairly clear. And obviously, Forty turned up in Shannon colours from the Spanish Grand Prix, I think. I was fortunate enough, I was very pleased that I did actually see with my own eyes the Shannon liveried Forties at Manicor in 1996. So I'm very And I saw them at Silverstone very briefly. I think those, yeah, those were about two of the, about the four opportunities, maybe you got to uh, to see them but yeah it was a proper minnow it's about 40 people in 96 the budget for the season was supposedly 12 million dollars but they didn't even really have that so they were in serious financial problems and then you had the Shannon Racing Team organisation that was popping up all over the place in F3, plus with an F3000 team that um, Tom Christensen was driving for. And then there was this announcement that they bought 51% of 40. And then Guido Forti, the owner of the team, subsequently said, well, no, they haven't because they haven't paid any money. And so that all went to court. But at this point, 40, or Shannon, whatever you want to call it, was really struggling. They ended up massively in debt to Cosworth, and so they, they didn't have any chance of finishing the French Grand Prix, for example. They did three laps for the two drivers in qualifying at Silverstone, which you'll have uh, hopefully not been blinking when they were out, so you had the chance to see them. And that Silverstone well, They thing, went past so quickly, that, uh, so slowly, that you could blink a few times and they'd still be in front of you. <laughs> exactly. And, and that was basically a little deal they did with Cosworth of, look, just let us run in qualifying, because then you tick the box in terms of not getting fined for not being there, et cetera, et cetera, which is the trap they wanted to avoid. But then Germany, they didn't have engines. And, and that was actually it in the end for them. So... This whole deal, as far as I can tell, it was basically driven by a company called Balco Avia Composites that worked with Forty. They owed quite a lot of money, and they seem to have presented this deal to Forty as a, a fate accompli. So they said, right, this is happening. Whether any money changed hands, I'm not sure. I suspect if any money did change hands, it would have gone to, to Balco Avia, which is why Forty never saw any of it, but I don't know that uh, for sure. 
Shannon itself was owned by a company called Finfirst, claimed to be an industrial and finance group. That was Italian-owned, but Shannon and Finfirst were Ireland-registered. And it's all connected to a character named Ben Gartz, whose actual first name was Herman. A colourful character, I think, is the way you would normally uh, put it. He saw the benefits in having a large number of racing entities across a number of countries, for perhaps the usual reason why certain shady characters do like that kind of thing. Connected to all sorts of activities, loan sharking, defaulted loans, that kind of thing. At times, he's been wanted in multiple countries. I'm not quite sure. I'm able to find out exactly what became of him, but there were certainly a lot of people after him, let's put it that way, and not the ideal person to own an F1 team. So they ended up fighting over who owned the team, but the team was basically dead at that point. And I think an Italian court ruled in favour of Shannon, but at that point, the whole Shannon thing seemed to be disappearing as well and all the money disappearing. So for whatever purposes, that whole enterprise had been set up had, had either been served or stopped and it all just dissolved and disappeared. So what it comes down to is a team that was on its knees financially, needing some help. This whole strange situation arose, almost being forced into the, the Shannon situation and then just collapsing in a load of imaginary money and that kind of thing but yeah i'd be interested to know if anyone knows exactly what happened to herman gartz there are references to him in various contexts all sorts of uh, lurid stories about him but i don't know exactly what uh, what became of him in terms of the years after but yeah i think there's a pretty consistent story in terms of what was going on there let's put it that way do you know what happened to the cars ed do you know where they are now they turned up, didn't they? Run well. There were forties that were running in, um, like arrive and drive at uh, up at Wigan, um, on the cart track in that neck of the woods. The name of which briefly escapes Three me. Three sisters. Three sisters. Yeah, and you could you could do that. And there was also I have seen a forty running in Eurobos in Shannon colours. So the cars are around. I think it had a Judd engine I want to say I have actually seen that car with my own eyes there was a Eurobus ran in support I think like the German Grand Prix at Hockenheim a few years ago and I'm pretty sure that car was there which obviously attracted my attention so yeah a very very uh, interesting uh, situation that that whole that whole thing and yeah just as so often happens with teams in this era the initial ownership ends up being in trouble and then you get all sorts of interesting characters turning up for various reasons and just as a footnote Shannon had talked about creating their own F1 team from scratch which is obviously why they got involved with 40 but completely unclear what the long-term objectives really were or whether it was just a convenient short-term thing for various fringe benefits you get from those sorts of operations. There are some really cool pictures online of um, the 40s at their last couple of events photographers would get in the garage and take pictures of the cars which are up on stands minus anything sitting really between the chassis and the rear wing um, so that you you can get quite an idea of uh, what what piece they were missing for most of those weekends as Ed mentioned uh, they, they weren't getting hold of their engines um, but they're fun pictures and I thought that car looks okay once they, uh, they change the colours I like the livery um, we do get a lot of requests to do Shannon Racing and the end of 40. We might do it one day, but as Ed mentioned there, one of the difficulties actually that the the details are so sketchy that there's not that much reference material you can use. We we might be able to force an episode out of it one day though, um, along with all the, the other hundred things that we've still got to do. Now, Andy, this is your time to shine. This is the question you wanted. It's from, uh, from Jagup Esther, who says... 
Why was Giorgio Pantano so promising in the junior ranks and why did his F1 career go the way it did? Maybe you can shed some light on it and delve into why he became the GP2 wizard. Now, he was very much in GP2 wizard mode uh, when you covered the first couple of years of that series after we got rid of F3000. F3, yeah, I'll be interested in um, Gary's input as well on the F1 side of things because obviously he did that part season uh, with Jordan in uh, 2004. And I think it's fair to say, Gary, the EJ14 uh, wasn't one of the, the easier projects you worked on. I know uh, finances were really strained at that time and uh, there was quite a lot of reliability issues. So I don't think we ever got to really see the best of him uh, in F1. You know, he was really fighting the Minardis at the back of the grid got in a quite a lot of first corner scrapes and and whatnot um but as you say he had been a legendary carter um he was the one poster of which nico rosberg had on his wall when he was growing up um and was always you know tipped for potential superstardom done some testing with williams and and things like that uh didn't have the biggest amount of budget and backing um which is probably how he ended up driving with for Gary. Um, but when when he came back to GP2 that first season, it was all a very last-minute thing. We went to Paul Ricard for the season launch, and they had the, the official brochure there for the very first start of the championship, and they'd drawn all the drivers in this sort of funky anime style. But Supernova hadn't confirmed its lineup in time, so they just had these two sort of generic... Um, <laughs> like caricatures of regens. racing drivers. It, regens, exactly that. Regens, brilliant. Um, and, and obviously on the day, then uh, they rocked up with Adam Carroll and Giorgio Pantano. So you know, for, from the bottom of the barrel, they ended up with a really strong, a great lineup, driver lineup. Um, but I think Pantano's uh, attitude towards being back at that level, at least to start with, uh, was shown when they had a mid-season test. I think it was the only one uh, they were testing mid-season. Again, at Ricard, and I was there. And uh, they only had two sets of tyres, one new tyres, one for the morning, one for the afternoon. And he went out, locked up at the first corner, uh, so ruined the tyres, came back into the pits and disappeared off to uh, his motorhome for a massage, uh, shall we call it. Uh, and I didn't come out uh, for the rest of the day. So he clearly didn't really want to be in GP2 that first season. And Carroll more or less uh, had the better of him throughout that time. But then he ended up becoming the sort of yardstick by which all drivers uh, were were um, judged by. Uh, he, he did stints at um, what was Colonial Physical and Motorsport, became Racing Engineering and, and Campos. And if you beat Giorgio, then you were you were good. You know that, and I would I would put a case forward that that first generation GP two car is the best single make junior single seater racing car, racing as in wheel to wheel action and uh, what it required from the driver that there's ever been. Um, they lost their way slightly with, and you will know this from being in that paddock, um, putting extra bits on the car to break so they could sell some spare parts against it in a deeply cynical way. Sorry, but that's true. That first car uh, had uh, some really nifty ground effects and it could just run really well. When they got the uh, slicks instead of the Bridgestone grooves, it was just a phenomenal racing car. The 2006 and seven seasons had some brilliant wheel-to-wheel action. And yeah, so Pantano became your man to beat. But the worst thing that ever happened to him is he won the championship. Um, so so he could no longer race in the series they had this rule that you had to sort of graduate away from it so rather than being the guy to beat he became you know the champion and and he didn't really ever go on to do anything 
consistently again bits and pieces here and there or whatever um but he was a he was a great um gp2 driver because he would he could ring the necks of those cars he had blistering one lap pace if you get the chance check out the start of the 2008 monza race where he wins the championship and he leads into the first corner from i think sixth but possibly eighth on the grid and it's not a jump start it's just legitimately an amazing start They're about four or five abreast as they go down uh down into the first chicane um and yeah he was he was always fun to be around uh, <laughs> I'll tell you this the, this little anecdote just because I was there. There was the the first GP2 season ended with a standalone race in Bahrain for reasons uh, that you can probably work out. Um, there was no one there fan wise, but everyone had a very good time. And at the uh, end of season awards, we were at this uh, nightclub, and Pantano was wearing ice white jeans, a black shirt, and with slick back hair. And the band that were up on stage, they called him. At, Hey, Patrick Swayze. And they called him up and they had him on stage <laughs> to sort of sing along with them as they did uh, a, a, a sort of dirty dancing song out there. Um, he was always up for a laugh. I, I really I really enjoyed covering um, Georgia in that time. And I thought he would have made a good um, champ car driver at that time. I know he did a handful of races for various people. He even popped up with Ganassi quite a lot, a few years down the line. Um, but I think mainly on the reasons of budget, it never sort of worked out for him. Yeah, it was interesting. I you said it there really i always kind of viewed him as the gatekeeper it's like if, if you really want to get to f1 you, you've got to be able to get past this guy um and yeah and a level boss isn't he yeah exactly that's a really good way of looking at it uh let's let's move on to a question i'm going to put to everybody it's from mike noon who says with the rush of manufacturers that joined in this era which manufacturer did you wish had joined and why so ed you can go first have you got one for this you know, I'd like to have seen a General Motors brand in, so probably Chevrolet. That could have been very interesting. Could have transformed the perspective in America, possibly. Who knows if they had an American driver? It's the age-old thing, isn't it? So, yeah, I think I don't see it as a great fit, Chevrolet and Formula One, but perhaps we'd see it as a perfectly logical fit if that had happened back in this era. So that's what I'd like to have seen. Yeah, I like that. They could have gone up against Ford, couldn't they? Um, Gary, I don't know if you had one for this. Was there was there ever a manufacturer that you thought? Jordan, for example, were talking to. They didn't manage to get in. Was there anyone anyone you were aware of and you thought, oh, I would have liked to work with them? Um, not really, because the thing I always found that moving on from you know the our early days in 91 with uh, Cosworth and, and a, a bit of involvement with Ford at that point in time, and then to Brian Hart, who was independent manuf- engine manufacturers, um, was such a good experience. Then my first real... Uh, I don't know, time with a, with a manufacturer was with Peugeot. And that was pretty hard work, to be honest. You know, the, you, you just you go, it's like a light switch. You just go from having this bloke on the other end of the phone, like Brian Harty, you speak to and say, Brian, could we, you know, wait, what about lowering the engine 20 millimetres? Could you do something with the sump so we could do that, get centre of gravity down a bit? Yeah, I think so. I'll have a look at it. And by the end of the week, you had a couple of sketches coming across and you think, oh, well done. Um, Raspberry Persia, the same sort of thing. It would, it would take monumental meetings. So I never really looked at working with a manufacturer as being something that I wanted to do. I was always the get your hands dirty bloke, like Brian was, and you know that that suited me. So no, manufacturer wise, I've never really craved for it. Yeah, not particularly desirable then when you actually have to work with them. Andy, have you got one? Well, Ed stole my General Motors, but I was going in a different direction uh, at that time. Uh, Ford and GM were busy acquiring european brands and uh trying to bump them up i wondered whether they might go with a saab uh, badged engine yeah 
a bit of motorsport history there and uh, trying to push it as a premier performance vehicle. Very left field. Uh, I picked one as well. Um, and it's one that we're going to get soon, actually. I-, I went for Audi just because Audi did so many cool things um, in the 90s and the 2000s. But they were always the big fish in the smaller ponds and they did such a good job. I'd have liked to have seen some of that expertise and some of that brilliance come to F1. You know, when they were when they were dominating Le Mans as a, as a factory team at the turn of the century, they didn't have much opposition, but it was clearly a brilliant professional outfit. So I'd have loved to have seen that um, take on take on the big the big rivals in F1, have a bit more competition. Now, Gary, we mentioned your views on Martin Brundle finishing his F1 career at Jordan earlier and your thoughts on veteran drivers sam bedford asks if martin brundle joined the commentary team a year early who ends up in the jordan seat in 1996 well very difficult one to answer i think you know it's one of these sort of situations where the driver or drivers were always associated with money i mean that's that's how it survived the team survived whether it's it was sponsorship led um and obviously martin came in you know, with our involvement with B and H and all that sort of stuff at that point in time, um, the sponsorship money was easier to find because of Martin being there. Um, so it was one of those sort of situations. I think you know you'd have to look at who was good at the time, but who was good with money, and you know that 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 would be a difficult thing. If I had had a choice, I mean, I was a, always been a big fan of Roberto Moreno, and I think if you had Roberto and you had his head straight and the fact that it, you know he had a future. Um, or he had time to show his future, then I think you know he was a very, very good candidate at that point in time. So I would have been pushing for somebody like that. But it would never have been easy. You know, let's say our switch in 97 to Ralph Schumacher and, and Giancarlo Fisichella was an ideal switch for me. So, you know, perhaps a little bit earlier, 96, one of those would have, have dropped in to see us. Um, who knows? It was just, it would have been money related for sure and sponsorship driven. So I, I really don't know who would have got the seat wouldn't have been my decision, but I would have pushed for Roberto. Yeah, Fizzy Keller was obviously on the scene making a few starts for Minardi, so it would have been good to see him in a Jordan. Uh, the background to the story is that uh, Eddie Jordan says Brundle was signed the day after they negotiated um, Irvine's release to Ferrari. So this was actually a situation where there weren't really any other names in the running because they, they got Martin over the line pretty quickly. Uh, Ed, let's have some more backmarker chat for you. Uh, Raf Leggy Too Fast, who is responsible for a brilliant drawing I have on my wall of me sitting on Jacques Villeneuve's 1997 Williams, which has never happened in real life yet. Uh, Raf asks, if you had a blank check from Bernie Eccleston, which team that folded in the 1990s would you provide with an injection of funds to help them grow and become great? And Raf uh, asks, would it be Simtech, Forti, LaRousse, Lotus, Coloni? Or do you have someone else, Ed? Oh, I'm very tempted to say LaRouche just because it's such a fun team. But <laughs> there were some, shall we say, organisational limitations there that contributed to its its failure. So I'm not sure that would have been a, a great investment of a blank cheque. So I actually, I'm not, this team's mentioned in the question. I'm not sure it's entirely in the spirit of it in many ways. But I'd be very interested to see what could have been done with Team Lotus 
with big cash injections when the two Peters were running it, Collins and Wright, because they actually made some pretty good against the odds progress, kind of 92 time into 93. They had Chris Murphy there. So on the car. It was, it was a quite a nice team that was doing well with Mick Hakkinen and, and Johnny Herbert before financial gravity inevitably set it back. And I can just imagine going to uh, going to Hethel and building a nice state-of-the-art factory, getting the right people. It, it could be really interesting to have a, a whole new history of Team Lotus uh, later on. Of course, they were a team that had massive success over the years which is almost why i don't feel like it's in the spirit of it but yeah perhaps more in the spirit would be to throw it at a team like onyx or something like that that uh, that punched massively above its weight and there's another team that i'm going to talk about in a, in a question in a moment that also crossed my mind but we'll save that for a, in a few questions time i can't believe you didn't say leighton house um andy uh, matt says i often hear it mentioned on the show about how alan prost cruised to the title in 1993 what is meant by that? And was it different to simply being dominant in the best car like Max Verstappen has been, for example? Oh, it's very different to how Max Verstappen is uh, winning <laughs> the races at the moment. I think it, it comes at, that there was very much a feeling at the time that he only did the absolutely as little as possible to win that championship. The um, FW15 was uh, the, clearly the best car on the grid. The, the McLaren was decent, but lacked the horsepower to, to really challenge. And I don't think anybody really expected the deficit to Damon Hill to be quite as small as, as it was uh, and thought that Prost was effectively dialing it in and not really expending any effort or energy. Um, and I know he absolutely refutes this, and it was just that you know he was able to drive it in such a smooth way that it didn't really look like he was trying. And I think there was a, a quote from Frank Williams sort of saying, can you let me know when you're going to go for a fast lap so I can pay attention, because he found it hard to tell the difference <laughs> when he was pushing or not. But I, it's still, if you, just, if you go back and you, and you re-watch some of those races, it, it doesn't look like he's overexerted himself, and that's where those cruising accusations come from uh, and why not right as Fangio we always say the idea is to win at the slowest possible speed so why push the car any any more than was needed um I don't you get the feeling this heart wasn't really truly in it in 93 don't you and he hated the active car as well he's quite happy to admit that so I just think it it was it was just not something he was particularly enjoying so yeah he just did what he needed to do interesting if he'd stayed around for the post uh, gizmo ban era that might have changed things a little bit who knows okay we've got back-to-back TWR related questions next uh, we'll give the first one to Gary Gary Joe Taylor asks if TWR were able to buy Ligier, so this had been in the mid '90s when Tom Walkinshaw was there. Does the head start in terms of resources stop it going the way of Arrows, uh, which of course folded under Tom? And does the lack of French infighting stop it going the way of Prost, or would it uh, was it always going to fall apart in the early 2000s? Now, Gary, as we recently discussed on the Spa 98 episode, you had talks with both Arrows and Prost in 1998. Do you think Tom Walkinshaw taking over Ligier fully in the mid-90s might have resulted in a better outcome for him? Um, it's possible. I mean, there were two very different people. Um, Tom was a you know, Mr. Muscle. Um, he he ran the team and he ran his his operation with you know he he was the man he was the muscle he said how it went and he took responsibility for it um whereas with with uh, the Prost situation and basically it was so french um 
it was difficult to 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 know. I I went there. I had an offer from them to go there as technical director, but it couldn't sort of be be said that because it needed they needed to be French. So they were going to still have a a French name as the at that time it was going to be you know um, chief technical officer or something. You know a new name created. Um, and I didn't like that. It wasn't straightforward. It wasn't black and white. So you just get on with the job. Who knows what would have happened? I'm sure that the the most successful out of it would have been if Tom had got full control of Leger and muscled it into the position that he would have wanted it to be in. Um, and as long as the team could withstand that, it's always about sponsorship. It's always about getting the money in. And you know, at that point in time, during that period, money was was difficult to find. And that's really what happened to Arrows. You know, they had they had good sponsorship, but they didn't have much sponsorship. That was the problem. And it really is difficult. You know, you cannot make it happen if you just don't have the money to make it happen. And it would depend with the Leger thing, how much was associated around it being French as far as pulling money in was concerned. And, you know, with all the best will in the world, um, Tom was not the technical guy that he sort of thought he was. Um, he, he definitely was a muscle man as far as management was concerned. And as I say, he would sit down and talk about things and... and um, you know, you'd say, this is what I think we should do. And he'd say, no, no, we're doing this. And it was, it would have been very, very difficult. So who knows what the outcome would have been? I think it wouldn't have been that much different from what we've, you know, the end result was, to be honest, of them both going down the pan. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, now, Andy, we've got a follow-up to that in a way. Uh, Tom Bannister asks, if Red Bull had bought Arrows, so I imagine this is around 0102 time when, when they were sniffing around it before Arrows died, do you, who do you think would have been their star named driver? Do you think David Coulthard would still have been tempted? Do you think Jaguar would have continued or sold to someone else? And would Christian Horner have still got the nod as team principal? I've sort of made the assumption that this is in happens in O2 to keep them going and, and yeah, then, I think that's fair uh, enough. It, it becomes Red Bull in, in O3. So there's a few things to um, unpick there. It might be a little bit early for Horner to get the gig there. Obviously, I think they were already working uh, with Red Bull in 3000 then, but it, they hadn't had this sort of long run of success that he would have had by in a couple of years later when the uh, the Jaguar takeover came. So he wouldn't necessarily be the obvious candidate. And given it's a little bit earlier and he's a little bit younger, I wonder whether Marco actually would, would have taken over then. He might have uh, uh, been young enough to... To go, to, you know, it only would have uh, this Formula Three Thousand team would have only been a couple of years uh, away from uh, have, having sort of shut that down. So, I, I'm not sure that if it's in 2002 that Horner gets the gets the gig. Um, likewise, I don't know if if Cawthard is quite so disenchanted at McLaren at that point in time that he's willing to take that gamble that he did with going to Red Bull at the time, and you know. Uh, as Gary mentioned earlier, given him that hint that maybe Adrian's not so happy and whatever. I, again, I think that the clock hasn't started ticking on that quite enough yet. So looking at the, I, I meant, well, Brunaldi would have definitely have stayed being, you know, uh, Red Bull's first and favourite driver. Would Frenson have been enough of a star name then? Oh, probably maybe a bit past his sell-by date. I wondered with another big money offer, would Irvine be the call card? in this he would have been out of contract at Jaguar at the end of 02 could he have been persuaded with a big Red Bull salary to be that Coulthard uh, replacement there so I think he's probably the more logical choice in that scenario 
Um, and on the Jaguar thing, uh, the project would have ended for sure. Ford, Ford were getting bored of it and uh, would have found a way of uh, of moving it or, or of getting it off of their books. If Red Bull aren't there to buy it, who is? Now, there, there aren't an enormous amount of credible potential buyers there, as we've seen, you know, with, of the various investments that came in that followed that. I wonder whether uh, Jackie might have been able to somehow convince them to give it back to him for a song and somehow pay support the team as a sponsor as well for a couple of years and whether Stuart Racing might have might have come back. Don't know, maybe he would have had a, enough of the, the troubles of that. But yeah, that 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 shift forward of a couple of years um really changes the dynamic here. Um I think the way history played out, the best move happened the way it did. And I'm not sure the the arrows thing would have necessarily led us to be in the Red Bull behemoth that it is now. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I've got a suggestion for who would have bought Jaguar at the end of 2004. Christian Horner. <laughs> yeah, he'd, he'd been sniffing around Jordan at the end of that year. So Arden were clearly interested at that point. If he's not, if he's not taken taken up elsewhere, I think he'd he'd definitely be sniffing around that. Particularly if Ford weren't that interested in in selling it for a big number. You know, when Christian was sniffing around Jordan. Uh, it was at the time that Bernie was going to try to put a, a sort of budget cap on of something like 50 million at that point in time from memory. And I remember sitting down with Christian talking to him about it, you know, could you run a team for that sort of money? Um, so I think the, the the move to getting Red Bull to buy uh, Jaguar and Christian coming in to run it was just a, a new dimension as far as finance is concerned. I mean, like it or not, when I left Jaguar at the end of 2000, it was a very professional team. You know, they had a good facility. It had a good operation going. Um, just, you know, the car didn't work the way Ford wanted it to work. And Ford just had no patience. And obviously over the next few years, it showed they had no patience. Um, and selling it, you know, was the right thing to do to Red Bull. But from visit, from having visited Arrows um, and, you know, being working at Jaguar, you know, I don't think you could have enticed a top driver to go to Arrows. It would have been very, very difficult to do that. I think whereas with the Jaguar facility, right or wrong, it was um, it was a good facility. Ed, uh, Christian Surge is another person who knows how to, uh, to play to your strengths. Uh, Christian says, it's 1989. The FIA and Bernie say that from now on, the top 10 get points in the current uh, F1 points system. How would this affect the teams at the back of the grid? Would they have survived longer because of better possibilities for points and the sponsorship opportunities that points give? Um, I will let Gary have a say on that as well for some of Jordan's more barren years. But first, Ed, what do you think? Is this how we save a bunch of the teams that you loved so much? Yeah, I'm not sure it would have made a massive difference to many of them, but there is one team I wonder about, particularly with that 1989 one, and that's actually AGS, which is a tiny French team that raced an F1 from late 86 to 91, run by a proper French garagiste, Henri Julien, ex-racing driver, and actually AGS had a pretty good history making racing cars, stretching back to the late 60s and later on went to win an F2 for example and in fact they came into F1 in 86 with a car that was built around an old Renault chassis design which is always fun when 
car designs have second lives in Formula One. But AGS actually made some pretty credible progress over the years and started to bring back V10's era in 89 pretty well. Gabriele Tarquini had that point in Mexico, but he had a seventh and an eighth as well. And it was genuinely encouraging, but it was just before everything fell apart because they ran out of money. They had an ambitious new factory by the Luke circuit they, they moved into in 1990. And there was a trajectory that was quite interesting there, but usual story didn't have the money. Results dropped off terrifyingly. They had a new car introduced mid-season that that wasn't developed and didn't go well. And in the end, Julian had to sell the team to uh, Cyril de Roof. So it's interesting to wonder that perhaps if there were a few more points finishes, and they had nine points finishes from 7th to 10th from 1987 to mid-89, I think that would have made the promise that team had show up a little bit more. And maybe it would have been easier to sell to sponsors and get the cash it needed to make that transition under Julian's ownership. Who knows? I mean, ultimately, it was a proper garagist team. It ran out of the uh, garage de l'avenir in Gonafron. So it was a proper tiny operation, literally out of a garage. I think still there as well, the garage de l'avenir. But there'd still been big challenges, obviously, even if they had got some sponsors in. There was a lot of money that needed to be spent with that team and whether some tiny operation like that can really be scaled up is a big question. Plus, there's all the problems we talked about in the past with Ligier kind of having all of the French support channeled in towards it, particularly financially. But it's a team that's very easy to lump in with the omni-shambles that were some of the other operations. But actually, AGS did a promising job. They produced reliable cars. They got cars to the finish. They got top 10 finishes on a semi-regular basis. So maybe that would have allowed that credibility to be shown a little bit more and perhaps that would have changed things. But I don't think just scoring points a bit more regularly on its own would have transformed anyone's fortunes automatically. It would have needed to be really aggressively sold and I'm not sure AGS had the ability to sell themselves in that particular way to sponsors. But who knows? Interesting little team. So Gary, uh, from a Jordan perspective, I'm thinking really of 92 and 93 when, when points were their hardest to come by. Would it have helped the team in any way, even just in a morale sense, if some of those sort of back end of the top 10 results could have could have, could, could have given you some points and you, you know, you'd be making progress in the championship rather than sitting there on zero for so long. Yeah, I mean, it would have done for sure. Points make prizes, that's the old saying, isn't it? So points are very important. If you, if you look back then, <clears throat> I mean, there was 26 cars on the grid and the top six scored points. That's, you know, just over 25% of the of the grid would score points. Now there's 20 cars in the grid and the top 10 score points, so 50% of the grid score points. Um, not only the back markers and not only the bad years, because I think if you have bad years, you should suffer the consequences, but you know, you could be a pretty good team and finish 7th, 8th, ninth all the time and not score a point for it. And you, you, you know, you should. So it's one of those sort of situations, I think, where the, the more points going further back did repay you for your your efforts um and reliability was always a, a big issue back then with 26 cars you know there wasn't the, the the testing equipment to to understand the equipment you took to a race meeting everything was done on the track so reliability was an issue so there was less cars finishing races but still to, to finish in the top six normally you had to have a pretty good car normally you had to be competitive uh, from lap one and i'm sure that you know having points back to 10th would have been it would have closed, it would have brought the championships closer together because when you had a bad day as a top team you would still have scored some points you know you wouldn't have just lost everything so i think it closes the championship up a bit i'm not a big fan of this you know the big advantage for for winning 
um, 25 currently for, and 18 for second. And that was all done to try to make sure that you didn't just finish second consistently and make sure you were you know, doing okay, that you would fight for the win. Um, but now whenever we see the domination of, of a team like Red Bull and Max Verstappen, you know, that 25, that difference of seven points to second place suddenly mounts up so quickly. Um, it's, it's, you know, that's a difficult one to cope with. So um, I think the points need a review. And I think at that, that, at that point in time, points back to 10th would have helped just keep the championship a bit closer together as long as it wasn't the big steps between the points. Um, you know, just have it, have it closer, but have more of them. Andy, uh, the next question is a fun one from Hugh Douglas, who asks, if the Adrian Newey-Ron Dennis relationship doesn't break down and spoil the 2004 McLaren, which in this scenario would be much more MP420-ish, so the brilliant car that followed in 2005, how much better is Kimi's year in 2004? Is a Raikkonen-Schumacher title rematch from 2003 feasible, or was the Ferrari F2004 so good that not even Newey could have matched it? Yeah, sadly, I don't see it ultimately making that much difference. Um, the reliability issues that um, still play um, Mercedes into 2005 and I think Kimi had three straight engine failures at the start for 2004 I'm not I don't see how um, that's going to be compensated I know uh, the the way in which um, the packaging of the car uh, can help with the reliability um, but I'm not sure that that's what ultimately the problem the Mercedes had there but it's the com- it's not just the the Ferrari F2004 it's a combination of them the Bridgestones and the unlimited testing that made that such a dominant package and i don't think there's anything that Newey could have done to have beaten that over the course of the season they could have been better absolutely i mean let's not forget they were so shambolic at the start of the season that bob mckenzie bet ron dennis they wouldn't win a race and that led them to having to run that lap of silverstone in silver paint that those of us who saw it are trying to erase from their memories um <laughs> but uh I, I i don't see i don't see that um lead into a uh the championship um fight coming back in what i would much prefer is that it was uh, a much more reliable mercedes engine in 2005 and we had a a, a proper kimi alonso fight for that championship that that's the great uh, and with schumacher in the mix as well that's the great title three-way fight that we missed out on and i think 2004 was a, effectively a write-off for the moment the cars came out of the box yeah that's fair enough uh yeah, a competitive Schumacher in 05 would have been would have been much more fun, as we saw on the odd occasion. Gary, uh, Michael Armadi asks a question that's uh, very specifically for you. Uh, Michael says, how did the 1994 mid-season rule changes impact the smaller teams and to what extent did they contribute to the bankruptcy of some? By the end of the next season, teams like LaRousse, Simtech, Pacific and Lotus had all disappeared. What are Gary's thoughts on this? Well, I think all the teams during uh, that period, you know, the the mid-90s were were living on a shoestring, to be honest. You know, none of them were, were financially very sound. Um, unless you were up the front winning. Um, so I think for, as you say, Larus, Semtec, Pacific, Lotus, all of them were, were right on the edge. Now, whether the changes of regulations um, affected any of them, I'm, I'm not quite sure because as a team, we were one of those mid, mid, uh, mid-grid teams that were um, fighting for survival. You know, every race was important to us. Every sponsor was important to us. You know, we had sponsors on the car that were, were giving us pasta at night just in some of the races, uh, so we had free food. But we 
we bought into the 94 rule changes. You know, after Ayrton's accident, um, the technical working group was set up and we had a, a technical member of each team would attend these meetings with the FIA. Normally, Max or Bernie would be there. Um, so you could get you could get resolution to some problems very, very quickly. And, you know, we were we were happy to contribute towards that and happy that what was going to come out of it would normally be okay. And we were testing the ref, I think it was, and the, the, the finalization of the rules for the diffuser being reduced in size to the center line of the rear wheel instead of to the trailing edge of the rear wheel was, was brought into play. You know, we could have shouted and screamed and hollered about it, but instead we got the floor of the car and got a jigsaw out and modified it. Um, cut it off, put some gurney flaps along the back of it and went out after lunchtime and this is what the car did. And we thought, okay, that's not too bad. You know, a bit of wing adjustment here to get the balance again and it was it was okay. So you could you could react to those changes of regulations. Um, the the impact of it was was more felt as years went by because suddenly the cars became, did become more expensive because of it. You know, the testing and the and the the um, accident testing and impact testing and you know lateral testing, rollover bar testing, all that stuff became more and more and more and more. So the ninety four wasn't really too big a problem for me. Um, it was sensible stuff that we all discussed, uh, but as I say, it got a bit more complicated as the years went by. But then. You know, you got to live with what you got. That's that's what Formula One is. If you want to get into it, so about like Ed said earlier on, a lot of people saw it as a way to um, make money or you know clean some money here and there. I suppose you might have wash it, um, but it wasn't like that. I think you know probably Jordan was one of the one of the teams that were guilty of setting that standard because you know Eddie came in from was nothing really in reality, and we put together a fairly decent little team that was reasonably successful we had our bad years but we had our good years as well and i think a lot of other teams saw that as a way to you know to to come into formula one and it was possible because this team did it um and it was very very tough it was very very tough to survive um you know we could talk about the points as well you know all that sort of stuff it didn't help you but it was just very difficult to survive you had to keep your head down and get on with the job in hand and that's what we did as a team constantly when the regulations changed we reacted to it and just got on with it Okay, last question then, and it's from Joe Collinge, who asks, what is the worst livery of the era? And Joe says, for what it's worth, I'm going for either the 1997 Minardi or, and take cover, Joe, the Cronenberg 1994 LaRousse. But Mr. Straw may have something to say about that. So, Ed, before you give us your own nomination, do you have something to say about that? Well, just a general incredulous noise it's got to have been put in there to bait me i'm sure because that can't look great the one thing i will concede is that green front wing flap the top flap of the front wing was in green made no sense that bit was a bit odd but from side on looks great the cronenberg car only had it for a few races but yeah i, I really like that and if, even the regular larousse livery that year was was fun the green one as well so yeah that i think that's just deciding to put some outrageous claim into a question in order to force their question and endless because we couldn't turn that one down well, it makes a nice change from all the people who uh, put Jack Villeneuve in questions where he doesn't really fit. And, and they all admit that they're doing it just in the hope that they'll get picked. So uh, I'm, I'm glad someone's picking on you instead. Yeah, so I'd, I'd be interested. I'd be happy to hear a counter argument on the Cronenberg livery, but that's that's 
sitting in my pot of possible best liveries. I really like it. I will concede the 97 Minardi was a little bit iffy. It was about seven different liveries smashed together, as far as I can tell. So not a classic. But I was trying to think about what worked for this. And I think the word, the key word is livery, because I feel like a a livery design needs to be more than just a colour, because there are quite a few cars around that were just a colour, sort of a 1990 Coloni, which is just yellow. Well, that's nice, and I suppose it's a livery technically, but I don't want to just complain about a blank car. So overall, I'm going to go back to one of my old favourites, which is the 93 Scuderia Italia Lola, because it's an actual livery, but there's something about it that's always looked generic, unlicensed F1 car, those flame effects and everything, the white and red, and it just looks really, really low rent. Actually, my favourite thing about it is whenever I'm, I'm in Bahrain, I can always make the joke, usually to Scott Mitchell Malm, uh, my colleague, about the fact that the Bahraini flag seems to be based on the Scuderia Italia livery from that. I bet Scott loves that. <laughs> from joke. that, yeah, yeah. He always enjoys my repetitive uh, comments. But I feel a little bit harsh saying that because they put some effort into it and I get why it looked like that. But it sounds to me like you love that car, so I don't think you can say it's the worst livery of the era. Well, they, I take issue with the fact he claims they put some effort into it. <laughs> but that's the thing that they've clearly tried a bit. It's not just oh, here's a here's a red car or here's a white car or whatever. Because there's some cars that look really cool in a single color, other ones just look a little bit lazy. But that, that that's a livery. They've said right, we will design this, and it's like the sort of it's the kind of thing I could come up with artistically, and I have the artistic talent of the average piece of paper. So I'm not uh, the person you want to be coming for for that. But I just thought it it looked just cheap and back of the grid and. And ultimately, because they didn't have the budget, that was a cheap back-of-the-grid car, ultimately. Albeit one that if it properly developed, had a little bit of potential, but they, they hardly did anything on it. But yeah, that, that car just looked terrible. And obviously the Scuderia Italia cars had looked quite tidy before that. Obviously they looked a bit like decoy Ferraris, but they looked proper, but 93 just awful. Now, uh, before I go to Andy, Gary, I'm curious, as a car designer, did you ever care about the liveries was there ever a jordan where you designed it and then it you know ej gets all the sponsors and it rolls out in front of you and you go oh i don't like what they've done with that yes um i mean first of all you look at the bank balance and see how good the sponsors are then you can put up with most things Fair. but uh, i you know the one the one jordan that i never liked really was the 96 car the, the gold car a lot of people did I don't know. I just never after the years that we had with you know through from 91 obviously and we had a, a nice little car in 94 with, with the Sassel sponsorship. It was colourful, you know. It, it, it was something that was just in, enthusiastic. It brought you towards it, if you get my gist. Um, even through the Perzo era, you know, the, the red, white, blue, all that stuff was okay. And then we got hit with the 96 Jordan, which was just this one big black gold, you know, coloured deep. I never liked that. Ninety-seven then was a you know a bit of a lease of life again. So, if I had to pick one of the Jordans that I didn't like, it was the nineteen ninety-six car. But again, you know, I would first of all relate it to the bank balance. That I wouldn't care if it was turquoise, um, as long as the bank balance showed up and said it was uh, it was a good thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought the Sassel cars were good. I, I feel they get overlooked, but just because everyone talks about the one nine one and the seven up sponsorship, but I think what followed was nice. Two, uh, Andy, have you got one that you're particularly offended by? I've got a few I'm going to mention. Um, oh, here we go. Yeah, well, obviously the BAR Zip car is just awful on so many oh. ways. Um, it's but, become quite popular over the years, though. Yeah, it's familiarity blinding people to the awfulness of it. <laughs> Individually, they were good liveries, but together, yes. that's just awful, right? And there's no, it's no excuse for doing something like that. You pick one or the other, and you don't do both. Um, the Winfield Williams is a dreadful. 
especially compared to the Rothmans cars that, that that came before. Although the 99 one is the least offensive of them. Um, but easily the worst livery of this era and any era, quite frankly, is the Brabham BT60 of 92, the pink, blue, mauve abomination. And what makes it most offensive is that from... Uh, the Bernie era with the Martini livery and then through Parmalat, and even when it was who owned by whoever had the, the keys to the offices that week, they still had great liveries on those cars. So for Brabham to fizzle out with uh, just, I mean, it's sickeningly awful. Uh, the, those colours do not go together. And the fact it was about 18 seconds off the pace only <laughs> serves to, to just make it even more dreadful than that. So yeah, that's I, 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 I challenge anyone to come up with something worse than that. I thought of the Brabham, but I, it, it's the colour of the period, isn't it? This is the era of shell suits. Even more That's reason for it to be awful, for shell suits. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it, it did look awful, but it was also memorable. So I, I, I dismissed that one because I thought the loader was worse. But I just think it's very, very, very 92. Yeah, the old seal saying, if it's ugly, it needs to be quick. I don't think the Brabham was either, to be honest. Uh, again, as same as maybe the 96 Jordan, it wasn't as quick as it should be, but... You know, if it's ugly, it needs to be quick for sure. Yeah, there was nothing quick about that, Brabham. Um, Andy mentioned my one. I specifically went for the 98 Williams in early season spec when it had a lot more white on it. Um, it just it just looked awful. It looked a mess. I remember Martin Brundle at the first race at Melbourne said, it looks like they've stuck all the sponsor logos in a cannon and then fired it at the car. Um, they did tidy it up. Uh, they got rid of some of the white. I think some white went from the nose and maybe around the the cockpit of the driver and that made it look a bit better but it's as you mentioned it's partly because of what they followed the the Rothmans Williams liveries are in the discussion for greatest F1 liveries of all time they're absolutely gorgeous it works from every angle it looks great to replace something so brilliant and so iconic with just a red mess is awful and uh, Patrick Head is one of the Williams people who said he was never happy seeing his cars in red because Williams spent their entire existence trying to beat red cars. So it didn't make sense to be the colour of the enemy. But I will concede that the 99 car, it looked like someone had painted it all in one go. Then there'd been some kind of plan that all the bits were supposed to match each other. So I didn't mind that one so much. But that seemed a fitting place to leave things for this one. Uh, head to our Twitter community and submit your own suggestions for worst livery of the era in there. Uh, thanks to Ed, Gary and Andy for tackling all of that for us. And a special thank you, of course, to everybody who sent in questions and an apology to those of you who didn't make the cut. As I mentioned earlier, though, we will be doing another Ask Us Anything episode exclusively for the Race Members Club after the end of Series 8. But before we get to that, we've got one more episode to come where we'll be debating the top 10 title deciding races of the V10 era. The Athletic.